Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with our foodie navigator, James Winter. Hello. And on today's show, we are once again drawing back the velvet rope into the most exclusive of areas, the, according to us, world-leading Chef Hall of Fame, investing another hugely influential chef into this hallowed space and discovering how they've changed the way we all cook and eat today. So pop on your crispest of whites and highest of chef hats as we take a journey back to the Chef Hall of Fame. Hello James, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. I was just imagining in, in your intro as you're describing the take pulling back the rope, you know, this kind of long it's a bit like the entry to the you know, the the, the Top Gun premiere, you know, if they invited all the chefs, <laughs> they're sort of queuing up to get their moment before sort of brushing past Tom Cruise and into the main room. <laughs> you know. And, you know, it's it's it, it's always a f I mean I, do, I I enjoy looking these up and I I won't pretend I have all these at my fingertips. I do have to spend a bit of time trying to stitch the stories together a bit so that there's an, enough flesh on it to to be interesting you know but they are these are great characters that have have come through the kind of gastronomic universe and left a trail and you know it's interesting you know they're not always that easy to find and and you you kind of see shadows and, and marks of them in different spots and and maybe you'll get a sense of that today but it, but very rarely have i found sort of you can go there read the story of a great chef and go wow what a great story you have to kind of scoot around these little footprints they've made all over the place and try and use a little bit of imagination and creative thinking to kind of piece them in different places at different times oh i love that i get that though in my mind before you do these episodes i have in my mind this idea of you sort of rummaging through these awfully dusty libraries sort of harry potter-esque sort of finding these old culinary texts and piecing together these things because it's a sort of uh, the stories you've painted so far with the ones that we've got in there, who we were just talking about, you know, we've got uh, Escoffe in there, haven't we, already? Mm. And uh, We did Alexi Soyer and his um, innovative sort of gas-driven oven systems. Uh, we did Charles Ranhofer, who was like New York's first superstar celebrity chef with his sort of um, baked Alaskas and all sorts of fancy, you know, showmanship in the dining room. So, you know, these controversy are... with it, you know, Escoffier and the Ritz and Absolutely. all these places, and, and which well, is brilliant. And it's it's like this sort of these living history stories where you 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 weave them because, like you said, you sort of you're finding the clues, but you're also bringing to life the the people in them. These are not sort of we're not doing it in a sort of hushed, what, what? Uh, reverent way. It's more a case of these are flawed, interesting people who have done great things, but also you know mess up like the rest of us which mm. i love about this well certainly in escoffier's case it's quite difficult to find evidence of their personalities i think that's what you have to kind of intimate from their activity not often do you get a, a, a fully fledged out biography like you do with someone like an escoffier where, where he's clearly been researched and looked at and met and talked to you know he was a celebrity in his own time so there's documentation of a kind of you know, thinking behind his actions and obviously his actions are, are well recorded some of the others you know you never necessarily get a clear vision from anywhere of what kind of person they are. But obviously, you know, we, you and I have met many chefs. And to be honest, then, then, you know, obviously everyone is different. Everyone is, you know, an individual in their own right. But, you know, there's a certain personality trait 
that leads yes. people to work in a kitchen. So you can use that lens sometimes to just have a think about what kind of man or woman these people might be. And to be honest, I'd love to find more women in these history stories. You know, and I'm looking and looking, and I will. I make an effort next time we do one to, to do a female story. But you know, the, the 18, 1900s is, is a male-dominated historical period, unfortunately. Um, so where I are will. we going? Because that's where I love well, to start with these. It's almost the, the look well, and feel of the place. Yeah, so we're in France, okay? You know, the period is 18... 1800 to, to, to 1844 is the lifespan of our chef today and his name I'm not the best at pronouncing <laughs> French <laughs> I, I think I am but I don't think I am but his name is Adolphe Dugleray um, oh yes heard of him you Adolphe Adolf? Is that how, how do you say it? How do you spell the? Well, you the could say name? Adolf, but Adolf, you know, with an e on the end because he's French. Uh, Dugleray. So, Dugleray. Yeah. Oh, so a little flurry. Yeah. So he Paris? well, he was born in Bordeaux in 1805, but really he is a Parisian chef, a man of of, of that time, and obviously just as as a you know a, a historical perspective, France at that time is the most tumultuous, turbulent place on earth. I mean, this is this is revolutionary sort of period where France is you know reinventing itself every 50 60 years overthrowing monarchies and then bringing them back in and then putting in a government and burning themselves down they're going to war with prussia russia austria everybody you know it's all just kicking off so you know let's put that backdrop against you know a young man's the sort of journey through the restaurant world as it were or the gastronomic world because it doesn't start in restaurants it actually starts you know, working under someone we've just been talking about, Karem, and he 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 was one of this kind of brigade. So if you imagine this great sort of visionary general of Karem running a huge kitchen for for the Rothschild family, their grand estates, you know, and and, and sort of palaces outside sort of Paris and and beyond. You know, in that brigade of chefs, which Karem was the innovator of, having these great big teams of pastry and meat and fish and stocks and all sorts of organisation in the kitchen. You know, um, these are like military kitchens almost. Well, right? well, this, well is this the royal families he was doing this or the great the great he was cooking for everybody yes absolutely i mean obviously what happens in 1848 because he's 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 you know, working under Karem pretty much all the way through his apprenticeship up to adulthood is, you know, one, Karem dies in 1833, so his great sort of visionary leader in the kitchen um, has gone and he starts to take responsibility. But obviously then what happens in sort of 1848 is there is another revolution. You know, having yeah. having recovered from the first revolution and revolted themselves, they've gone full circle um, and there's another revolution um, in France and, and, you know, a lot of these great big houses and, and the aristocracy that were left remaining are disbanded and and France starts to rearrange itself in a different order and this is kind of that period where I suppose restaurants as we recognize them I, I think I mean, I'm not I'm not a historian like a mark is you know so really but you know you, you want to double check these ideas but I think this is that period where restaurants as we would recognize them began to emerge where chefs and cooks of great skill and organization who'd come out of these big kitchens of Karem and others end up thinking what am I going to do with my life you know I haven't got an employer I'm going to go to Paris I work in a restaurant and so not yeah, only for, that that makes sense because you're suddenly having to cook for people well, you haven't got some very wealthy lord giving you cash for it you're suddenly like what, what do I do we're actually going to cook for normal people but you're not going to stop 
having those skills and those and those things and I mean, you need to make a living and that is where people suddenly food is currency you know the, the people of france are eating out they like to eat out it becomes a sociable thing france is emerging from this sort of you know the sort of the idea of the old class system to being more egalitarian so that people have money and, and prospects and they like to spend it and they go out into the streets and they they socialize and I guess at that time, restaurants must have been appearing, certainly in Paris and other cities and maybe you know, elsewhere in France, at quite a rate you know, as, as, as people left to try to, you know, to set up a new life. And, and this is exactly what happened to Dougleray. You know, he, he started off at a, a restaurant called Les Trois Frères, Provençaux. Um, which three French, uh, three uh, Provençal brothers who apparently weren't brothers, um, named Barthélemy, <laughs> Maniel, and Simonas, who were all brothers in law, apparently, owned a restaurant and he worked for them um, and gained a bit of a name for himself because uh, you've got to think in Paris in sort of 1850, Provençal cooking was a bit of a novelty. Um, it was still, you know, cooking of the north was very different from the cooking of the south. So people flocked to it, they'd not seen these kind of ingredients and all sorts of stuff and styles, you know. Um, um, it was a, it That's was a interesting, change. yeah, because travel, I mean, we've talked about the sort of the, the, the celebrity chef and how, how ideas traveled even back then. But also there was a, there, especially, you know, big countries, France is big when you start getting, you know, from top to bottom. Actually, different regional things probably wouldn't travel that much because they're quite well protected as well in places, aren't they? Especially if you've only worked for your lord in the north. It's not like your, your cooking or your styles are going to have been heralded everywhere. So there must be a bit of novelty in this. No, absolutely, and I think it's at that time. And, and you're right; it's that you know the, the way news travels is 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 very different than it is today. Here, you, something happens somewhere in the world, boff, we all know about it within seconds, instantly across the globe. In that, you know, 150 years ago, it's very different. So you know, certain things would have been would have come out of the rural parts of a country into Paris. Paris was the hotspot where people are, so things travel much faster in Paris. But it feels like they began in Paris, and you know, it's it's that idea with Provençal food maybe was a novelty people loved it but things like um we maybe talk about dishes in another another podcast specifically specific stories but the the tart tatan you know it's a it's a great story of a of a product as it were that's that's invented you know by these tatan sisters in in slightly southern south of paris um in samur i think it is a little town in the dodoin um in their hotel for upside down stories flipping accident whatever the creation story is but it wasn't until somebody came to the hotel, saw this tart, gave it a name, actually opened a restaurant themselves in Paris, stuck the tart to tan on the menu, called it tart to tan, told its story, but bam, suddenly people knew what tart to tan was. It was never going to be a, a global phenomena just on the hotel menu of, of the Tatan sisters in, in La Motte Beuvron. You know, down in, in sort of just that south of Paris, it, it needed to come to that melting pot of Paris and go on to these restaurant menus that you know people like Dugleray and others were were, were serving at um, to get recognised and to become part of a lexicon of food. I mean, this is where people ate. So, you know, that's how it, that's how these things work. And and Dugleray stayed. You know, working for these brothers for you know, a good period of time. He's clearly a very loyal man. I mean, he never he didn't move around too much, so he was there for almost. But he's just a jobbing chef at this point, is he? He doesn't yeah. have any huge profile. He's well thought of. Well, but he's, well, he's not changed the world. I don't think he ever had a huge profile, but clearly people knew who he was. He's one of those characters, and, you, and we know those in the food world. There are lots of chefs that people know and everyone knows, but people at home watching television won't know at all, right? Because they haven't burst out of the scene and made a noise for themselves. He wasn't vocal in terms of writing and. And, and doing demonstrations and performing and also you know he didn't 
run his own he didn't start his own restaurant he wasn't a, a showman in a dining room perhaps so you know he was with the you know these these three brothers for for a good period of time for almost 18 years up until 1866 where he went to run and and join what some people would argue is the greatest French restaurant of all time, which is uh, it's something called the Le Café Anglais. Now, I don't know if you've ever come across. I've heard of it. I've never been there. I don't think I have. Well, it doesn't. It, it. it doesn't exist anymore, um, as oh, far as I'm okay. as far as I'm aware. There are other Café Anglais, right? There are. Right. You know, it's, it's one of those romantic restaurant names now. But when you say it, the foodies sort of melt and go, "Oh yes, Café Anglais." You know, not that anyone's ever eaten at it. I mean, it closed in well, I don't know 1913, apparently officially. And his, the building still exists. It was actually stuck on the corner of, for those who know Paris very well, Boulevard des Italiennes and Rue de Marivaux, um, on one of the great big boulevards of, of sort of the first, second arrondissement, I think, in, in and Paris. And am I wrong? Does that mean Cafe English? Yeah. Is that what? And it was what? it was named simply, you've got to think in, you know, you're thinking of a name to, 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 to call it. I mean, it opened in 1802, so it had been open a fair while. It was already a bustling restaurant in the Parisian scene, and it was named after a peace accord between Britain and France, right? Britain and France are constantly at war, sometimes with friends, sometimes with not, sometimes with allies, sometimes enemies. You know, this restaurant was called Café Anglais as a kind of nod to the fact that, you know, when it, you know Britain and France are allied in some way. But it was always a kind of um, sort of easygoing sort of hangout, a, 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 drop, a dropping in place where you'd go and have a bit of grilled meat and fish and then pop off to a theatre or, you know, the clientele would be coachmen and, and, and sort of housemaids and just anybody, just sort of working people. But then slowly over the sort of period of time, you know, up until sort of 18, sort of 60s when, when de Glaret, uh arrived, it had started to kind of become a bit more fashionable. It had started to step up a little bit. Um you know, into its, uh, you know, into itself. So it, it was becoming a bit grander, and obviously, when, well, it's been around time, for what fifty years. You said at that point. So that's by that point, yeah, yeah he's going. That's has a decent reputation. He's he's a um, he's a splendid looking chap as well, isn't he? He's got oh, well, all, all the the pictures of him. He's sort of. I mean, it's difficult to say because they're paintings, things. But he's round and he's not. He's not. He looks cheeky almost in his in his in the pictures I'm seeing. Of him. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 you know, I'm never quite certain if these pictures are even accurate when you find these pictures on yeah. the internet of people because sometimes you see different chefs with the same picture and all sorts of stuff. And you know, he appears to have that kind of mustachioed, chubby, round sort of you know sort of chefy, you know, sort of I don't know that kind of. He looks like a magician. Chef. He looks yes. like a sort of slightly low rent magician actually with a little mustache. Not one of those massive, splendid, I'm in charge mustaches. It's more of a little. Little cheeky moustache mm. and curly black hair, and this looks like a. This actually looks like a photo rather than a um, rather than a, a painting. So you, you, I don't know. I mean, like you said, you never quite know who, who they are. But um, but yeah, it's quite it's quite. He has very alive eyes in it mm. as well. So this eyes. was when you know, he and when the, he and the Cafe Anglais came together. The Cafe Anglais suddenly becomes. You know, that's where it's date stamp for me. I think yeah, other people might feel differently in terms of it becoming. The restaurant that everyone gets, you know, sort of misty-eyed about in the journey of French gastronomy in Paris, right? It's it becomes the place, and 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 this period of time, he was he was there for a few years. Um, was marked by one you know particular event, um, as well as a number of signature dishes which he created. One or two still exist in the lexicon of things today, which I'll come to at the end. Know what that means? That means someone's made a sale on Shopify. Shopify, our new sponsor, are here to make it simple for anyone to sell 
anywhere. Look, we know loads of you out there are business owners and business runners yourselves working in the food industry. And the good thing is Shopify is here to help you. From creating your online shop in your look to finding new customers to scaling that burning idea that you have. With Shopify, you can do it all from one place with no need for skills and design or coding, which is really useful because none of us really have those, do we? It's how every minute of every day a new seller makes their first sale with Shopify and you can join them. Hey, have you heard about Pizza Pilgrims? Well, their pizza kits look as great as they taste and apparently they sell as many of them through Shopify as they do pizzas in their retail shops. Loads of companies out there have found success on Shopify because Shopify makes it really, really simple and easy for you to sell online. All you have to do is sign up for a free 14-day trial at shopify.co.uk slash foodjourney, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash food journey and you can start growing your business today shopify.co.uk slash food journey and get selling right back to the show he defines his time at this restaurant a year after he joins it in 1867 on on this this mythical day the 7th of june which was part of you know um that was one of the great expositions was happening in paris um at the time and um there was he he, he hosted um at the behest of King William of Prussia, um, no less, what is now known as the Three Emperors Dinner. Now, if you Google this, you can read lots and lots and lots and things about it. It's one of those dinners that, God, you wish you were, you were sort of invited to sit on one of the tables far away from the top table so you could just enjoy yourself. <laughs> um, you know, 16 courses um, of food, of, of, of sort of the most complicated but sort of you know sort of high end gastronomic ambition you can. But it was called the Three Emperors Dinner. You know, slightly misnomer because there was I think only technically one emperor there, but it was King William of Prussia <laughs> who invited his his two buddies, Tsar Alexander II of Russia, um, plus his son came, Tsar Alexander III, the Tsarevich came, and then Prince Otto von Bismarck. You know, these these nations we're, we're, at, we're at an interesting period again in European history where you know, war has just ended for a brief period of time and it's about to begin again. <laughs> so, and yeah. France is at the, is for, you know, for whatever reason, that, you know, again, historians would know more about what um, Napoleon III's particular sort of time in charge of, of, of France, you know, was at a low political ebb. It had been defeated in various things and he'd made missteps politically and, and whatever. So basically, I, I can only imagine that three great big, you know, big cowboys of Europe had decided to come and eat themselves senseless in one of Paris's great restaurants just because they could, right? They estimate <laughs> it was like, in, in today's money, like nine grand a person. Spent on it, yes, insane. yes. I mean, I don't know how many people came to it. I'm sure there was it was quite a few. Probably. Yeah, I mean, do you know what? I don't, I don't know whether it was just those three men, but I don't think it was, um, and their guests. But it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a good old spend, and obviously a big chunk of that is is spent on wines. Um, you of know. course, yeah. So you know, it sounds good though. Three emperors dinner. I mean, it's quite. It, it's certainly got something. They even it. had special lead glass bottles made for the champagne. I think by by one of the so that the czar could see, you know, see clearly into the bottles of champagne and admire its beauty. Now, let, let, let me take you through some of these courses, okay? I mean, we, we don't necessarily have to go through the whole thing, but it's it's got 16 courses, which starts with these little uh, sharing plates, potagers. Um, what first one is, I mean, it's it's basically it's called potager imperatrice, which I don't I've not don't know that word, but it's a chicken thick chicken stock with tapioca, finished egg yolks and cream, so like a chickeny mousse, um, mm, you know, with with various bits of other bits of a chicken. <laughs> 
toasted in force meat, coxcomb, kidneys, and some green peas just for colour, I would imagine. They must have looked at it and gone, that's all a bit grey. Put some That's peas what I in. Do. I just stick some peas in it to make it look green. Oh, and then, okay. and then another one of fresh peas. So there's, there's a very vibrant green potager on the table. Then, then a couple of souffle, souffle, chicken souffle again. But this one's stuffed with truffles. Um, uh, uh, there's fillets of sole served in white wine, uh, followed by whole sort of tur- fillets of turkey, a uh, turkey turbot under the grill. So like already, you, you know, I mean, you think about what a turbot dish and fillet of sole. You know, this is all the top end ingredients. You've got a, um, a saddle of, of mutton, actually, although it could be it could be lamb, it could be the translation with broad beans. So you've got you know you've got quite rich things. That's that's just a starter, and then oh you my start. God. How long have you gone for? Oh, we've got sixteen courses now. Now this is what I, I really like. There's a dish on here which I've, I've I don't think I've ever come across any. Other. It's, it's poule a la portugaise, right? Which you can only assume is Portuguese chicken, right? Portuguese chicken, yeah. And in in modern parlance, Portuguese chicken for me. Is piri piri chicken? <laughs> Please tell I, me he made Nando's. I, I, That's a, the best Nando's. Thing. I love it. I <laughs> love so it. In the middle of this, Zara Alexander is having Nando's chicken. Right? Well, it's roasted He's in, in an adobo. Right now, that's it. He well, it says here chicken roasted with a covering of adobo paste consisting of tomato, red bell peppers, garlic, oregano, oregano, paprika, cayenne pepper, brown sugar, lemon juice, white wine, chicken stock, olive oil. It was stuffed with flavorful rice, but essentially it sounds like Nando's. Yeah, and it came with two sides. Uh, it came with the rice. Chips. <laughs> well, this one came with a warm patty of quail and uh, to, um, uh, a lobster. <laughs> so, so I do that in my Nando's. <laughs> and, and, and on it goes. You know, you've got. You know, after that, you've got. You haven't even got into the roast dishes of of of, uh, of duckling and and autolands. Your tiny little birds on toast. Um, and then you end up sort of with you know some some side vegetable dishes and and desserts, which is very simple. It was a basically a bomb glacé, which is basically just a ball of ice cream at the end. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's impressive back then. I mean, really impressive, isn't it? I tell you what, the thing is, you know, say what you like about these you know, the pompous lordy type knobs out there. It takes training to eat that much food. Having, you know, had some fancy foods, you mm. need, I always struggle with it, especially when you get past three or four courses. I don't have the capacity. These guys, you know, there's some dedication to eat 16 courses of this. And I, I mean, guess a lot of it must have been, you know, having done our sort of food menu journey a bit, you know, this would have been served... Um, a la Russian style. You know, these are, this is bizarre, you know. So everything would have been laid out on the table. So you wouldn't have to, but it wouldn't be one after another, after another, after another. The entrees would come, you know, the potatoes would come out at once. The entrees would all come out at once. You know, the roast dishes would come out at once. The entremets would be with, with that, you know. So you'd have a lot of food coming out, being sat at the table for you to, to dig into. It wouldn't necessarily be one, 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 one. So, so did he nail it? Because this must have been the biggest dinner of the year or something. Did he well, smash it? Did everyone well, think it was awesome? Absolutely. I mean, the only criticism <laughs> that I've come across was for, I don't know, I can't remember if it was one of the czars or, or whatever prince thingy, um, was that <laughs> there was a lack of foie gras on the menu. Oh, honestly. I mean, come on. I mean, that's just ridiculous. No I mean, caviar either. I mean, I mean, to be fair, you would, but I mean, you know, if you were that kind of person, you would just expect there was surely going to be some, you know, foie gras and caviar, isn't there? I mean, you know, if I you was can't... cooking for them, I would put foie gras on basically everything, including the pudding, because you mm. know that's sort of where they'd be inclined with it, isn't it? And, and dust it in caviar as well. But, uh, but yeah, well, that, I mean, imagine the reaction if that's all they said when they left. How was that? You know, chef comes out. How he comes. No caviar. Ring it, no, ring no, 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 
No Fargo. Oh, thanks, <laughs> emperors. You're not even proper emperors. Whatever. <laughs> oh, poor thing. But it seemed to have gone down. So there was, was this a moment? Nobody, nobody was beheaded, you see. But it became a moment where, obviously, <laughs> you know, the three great leaders of Europe sat in, in one of in the great restaurant of Paris at the time and, and forevermore, you know, and, and had this incredible, as you put it, you know, £9,000 a head meal, a lot of it in wine. And it was it was drunk with, you know, the greatest wines France had at its disposal. So you've got Chevy Chambertin, 1840. You've got Chateau Margaux, 1847, Chateau Latour, 47, Chateau Lafitte, 48, you know, and all, and, and obviously lots of Rhoda uh, uh, Champagne and Madeira from 1810 and, and you know, some Sherry from, from 1821 and, and finished with a Chateau de Kermo of 1847. So, I mean, that's like the Galacticos of wine, even today, you know, that that's, you know, those really? wines, you know, uh, you know, the years might be different. I'm sure they picked the best years they could, but those, they, those you know, um, um, estates and, and, and winemakers are still, you know, they're the, that is, I mean, that is the greatest lineup of wine, you know, you could argue ever put together, you know, and it's, so this was no expense spared, you know, and it, and it built that reputation of the Café Anglais, which then kept it going all the way until it finally closed in sort of 1913. But after that, obviously, you know, Duglaire's name was, 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 you know, made and people would go to that restaurant, you know, to, to sample his food and, and, and as these guys do, which is where, again, going back to my first point about you have to kind of stitch um, little bits of their life together. You then come across him, you see, after a, a number of dishes that, that he created. Now, there's a lot of Duglare, uh, a la Duglare dishes, which you know, haven't survived the kind of the, the longevity of, of gastronomy and, and don't get cooked so often. But well, one dish that he's, he's um, well, two, one he's definitely credited with, one he's potentially credited with, uh, one with others. And, and it's this idea of pomana, these anna potatoes, which... You know, you you may not visualise straight away, but if I showed you them, you would. They're a classic French side dish of very very thin slices of potato, yeah, cooked in lots and lots of melting butter. So a bit like um, dauphinoise, but not quite. They're just very very thin slices of potato, which are often served in a restaurant as a side dish because they go sort of thin and crispy, uh, and you cut through them in layers and you serve yeah, they them. They look fabulous, and there's no cream or messing around like that. In no, no, and and it's one potato. of those things that you will still see. You know. You always, you know, as a as a foodie, you're quite excited when you see pomana on a menu. But you will see it. I mean, if you go out, you know, often enough at some, you know, to to various styles of restaurant, you're not going to see it in Nando's. Um, you will come across <laughs> pomana, you know, which is one one of his creations, which allows him, you know, to live on a little bit. I mean, obviously his name's not in it, but at least you kind of, you know, he's left his mark on gastronomy, which will be forevermore i mean it's it's written into the tomes of of every other cookbook so you know there'll be a recipe for pom anna in a scoffier's cookbook you know there'll well, be a remarkable recipe. any any chef who i mean you can't almost you can't almost overstate how the, the impact of inventing a dish i mean because chefs you know try out new dishes all the time but may, inventing a dish that is still made today and still written in all the major cookbooks today is incredible because like you said you look you look in the kind of the margins to find out how how influential these people were well Imagine how many other things he made at the time, which which influenced people around it. But actually, if one of them has managed to last, you know, hundred odd years, hundred fifty years almost, that's incredible. Yeah. Think about the things that didn't last as long, or the things we don't credit him with or understand about. What was the other one you said? That you said was the second dish, which we're not sure comes from him. Well, there's a, there's a dish called Tornados Rossini, which is one of those great sort of steak dishes, which has got you know, um, I think it's got foie gras and truffles and all sorts of stuff in. And yeah, there's a number. Lesson, you see, he put, put in everything from that moment on. Well, there's a number of chefs that sort of are, are slightly associated with that, from Carême and Escoffier. No one's quite sure, but although apparently. Um, 
uh, Rossini, who the dish is named after, the Italian composer, um, described once uh, Dugler as the La Mozart de la Cuisine, the Mozart of the kitchen. So it's it's possible they certainly knew each other. I mean, he was he was often it was the same time period, and it's quite likely that they would have come across each other because Rossini was a big foodie and would he be eating out all the time. So there's every chance, and the idea being that the, the apocryphal probably story goes that that uh, you you cook this dish at table side or you can do because um, it's it's very quickly cooked with steak and then finished with, with bits of fogger and truffle and, and red wine and all sorts in a pan um, but he was making this dish to, to Rossini who's watching and obviously um, for some reason you know um, he didn't want to see it there's sort of flames probably a bit of flambe but Rossini didn't want to see him do it so he commanded that he should turn his back you know turn, turn him while dos turn away you turn your back on me right so that's why it's Tornidos Rossini is the, is the apocryphal story which who knows it's great you know, no. A dish but there's, story is where it's at. I well, mean, that's all it's about, it so isn't it? So much more. Yeah, but also yeah, just yeah. that idea of creating a new dish, as you were saying, is is one of those. I mean, I don't know if chefs aim for that, but it's to to create something new that has never been put together before. Is is you know is impossibly hard now because millions of things will be put together. But even then, it's impossibly hard. And there's always this great quote from um, maybe we'll talk about him. One episode is, is the first great gourmand, this guy Jean Antelem Briat Savaran. Um, whose whose name lives on in a particular in in, in a cheese, of course, the Savaran <laughs> cheese is named after, which is a great thing to to have. No, like if you're a gourmand, have a cheese named after you. No, oh, of course, a cheese but, that lives in in eternity with your name on it. And so, you know, he was the great first initial gourmand. He wrote the Anatomy of of Taste, is his book, and he's discussing everything from table manners to the way we should eat and what food means. And he very famous is a really wonderful quote from him. It says, "The discovery of a new dish confers more happiness on humanity than the discovery of a new star." Was his opinion that anybody that can find and create something new in the food spectrum, which is not only just novel and new, but it is delicious, you know. Is more important than when we find a new planet in the solar system to humanity. You know, it conveys more pleasure to people than you know than than something ethereal like a like a star or something we can't touch. Which is well, you know, it connects with the inner universe much closer, doesn't it? It's something you can literally touch and feel pleasure from. And and I'm sure you you were going to mention this, but I know just reading as you're talking, it's he he hated smoking and he banned all of his chefs from smoking in or outside the workplace and also wouldn't let his diners smoke either until after the meal which mm. uh, uh, two things strike me on that the first one is having been around many professional kitchens the idea of chefs not smoking means he probably had a pool of about three who were willing to work for him because every chef i know is sort of must be the stress of the job sort of chain smokes and secondly i'm guessing i mean especially if you think about the time when smoking was considered healthy the idea he must have possibly made the connection between it you know, uh, damaging or closing down your ability to taste flavour and smells mm. and scents. And maybe he was aware of that. And that was one of the reasons where he felt his chefs couldn't do the job and his diners couldn't enjoy the food in that way that you you would if you had smoke everywhere, which is, I, I don't know, it's just a curious... Well, it's a very modern... I, 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 we came across this, if you remember, in Escoffier's story where he didn't like um, smoking or drinking. He saw it as an unhealthy lifestyle. And he was, he was very much progressive in realising that kitchens were unhealthy places to work. So, you know, he would prepare that sort of... He was a staff lunch guy, so he'd prepare somebody, whether it be him or one of his team, obviously, would prepare a healthy broth um 
for the team to eat before you know service to give them the energy but also just to feed them because these guys were, were, were probably quite you know maltreated what's the word Mal- yeah, malnourished, not, malnourished yeah. that's the word you know a little bit you know it's a hard life to live so you know he was clearly aware of the benefits of keeping his team healthy and and keeping the dining room you know, clearer smoke meant that people were probably able to enjoy his, his food more. I mean, it must have been incredibly difficult. And you're right, unpopular at times. This is 1860s in France, right? Yeah, no booze, no bags. You're like, oh, yeah. come on now. But, but in I the mean, dining room, I mean, you know, no yeah. smoking either. Cigars, I mean, must have been, oh gosh. Anyway, but he did, you know, did you're right. I think he allowed, at the end of service, there will be like a signal and people were allowed to light cigars. Can you imagine, yeah. that? Can you imagine that moment? It's like when you see everyone get off a plane back in the day and they used to all just go staggering into those smoking rooms, just go for it. Yeah. So if we're, in, in, in terms of the Hall of Fame, Obviously, much like with a with a with when sportsmen get inducted, they sort of it comes back to a kind of a thing that they did to change the game, or a, mm. or a game they had that was particularly memorable. For Adolphe, what are we saying is his arch overarching impact upon the culinary world that we? Well, I mean, today? certainly, you know, for me, it's it's more about the kind of background impact. You know, yes, there's Pomana and perhaps Tornados Rossini's sort of dishes that have, have stood the test of time, but it's really, you know, if you're putting together that team, let's do, let's just use the sort of football analogy. Not every player is going to be a striker. Not every player's going to, you know, be a winger with all the skills. Right? Someone has to be Franz Beckenbauer. You know, Bobby Moore. <laughs> you know, somebody has to hold the midfield or defence together and, and occasionally have the ability to bring it up you know themselves from, from the, you know, the penalty box up to the halfway line you know with confidence and for me he sits in that world where here is a guy who was clearly a brilliant chef clearly imaginative and exciting but he wasn't necessarily motivated on becoming famous you know he didn't write any books um, not that I've seen or, or come across but you know his, his name comes out you know, of other people's work. You know, he comes out of... Um, there's a the great French writer, Alexandre Dumas, who who wrote Musketeers and, and about 4,000 other things, um, also wrote this Grand Dictionnaire de, de Cuisine in 1871. So, you know, so after uh, Dumas' time at um, the Café Anglais, um, but still, you know, he would go to the Café Anglais and was part of that scene, Dumas, and, you know, consulted with Duglaret to, to, to put this together. He wanted his wisdom and he wanted his knowledge because Duglaret was never going to do it himself. I think that's the point. He was more interested in, in the practice of what he was doing. So in well, that's that great. sense... When you start filling in the margins of who these people are, like you said, he's not some person that was obsessed with legacy potentially and, and trying to you know get to that point in their career where they just want to take a step back and write books and, and tell everyone how wonderful they were. He sounds like he was wanted to be in the kitchen cooking that's well that's what that's what it do. no i agree and i think it's it's hard to kind of you know you can't put these people on one platform and say they're all equal they all provide a different thing and the fact that we're able to still remember and talk about their lives and their journeys and their creations you know this is you know what, what nearly like 160 years later is is you know is something in itself and you know that for me is is what gets them into that Hall of Fame initially, you know, is, is the fact that we still, their, their food is still relevant. You know, you could, you yeah. could, you could do pomana with your, with your, you know, your roast chicken on Sunday and it would still be delicious and it would still be really an interesting thing to cook and it would still work. You know. Isn't that amazing though? Because we do, you know, we've done many podcasts where we step back in time and sort of marvel at things people ate in the past, but you're completely right. We can have a, a slice of 1850 with our Sunday roast 
and it would be great and it would we'd love it and much as mark says whenever we step back in time they basically like the same stuff we like techniques yeah. and things may ingredients may change but ultimately if it's great food it's great food and i think he seemed to have his finger on the pulse of what that was and uh, in he invented nando's he invented I, Nando's. Exactly. If there's ever a reason to get him in there. I, poor guy. I mean, poor guy. I'm sure he's spinning wildly in his grave now that he's actually, after oh. all that, we're putting him down as a Nando's fan. Well, he'd just be thinking, he'd be like, you don't want to be, you know, kicking yourself like, what's it, the guy invented the internet? You know, that's always the analogy, isn't it? You know, <laughs> gave it to the world for free and thank God he did because it's the greatest gift man's, you know, discovered in centuries, but he didn't make a penny, you know, or at least, you know, not the, not the, not the people that you then use the internet in a, in a different way, you know, whatever. He's going you know, to maybe, maybe he would, he would be pleased that it just exists at all. Let's Piri Piri Duglare is how we'll, we'll remember him. <laughs> maybe on his maybe on his pedestal. In 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 when we, I think in the in the Hall of Fame we should have for each of them it should be just a little plinth with a chef's hat on it, and then just one plate below it with a signature dish with a little spotlight on it. And I think for him he could he could obviously have the pomana, but I think he could also have just like a little Piri Piri chicken thing next to it. So we and as you said that, I was just trying to remember. I was trying, I, what I never found was was um, was where he was buried. I quite I don't know whether it's. Just, bit somber or not but i'm always quite interested as to where where these guys are buried and it's a nice clue isn't it as to how how mm. they were thought of at the end as well i mean apparently when he you know when he was uh on his death the french press were unanimous in eulogizing him mm. which is again people people disappear from the public eye so the idea that but you know by the time he died unless he died suddenly while in the kitchen or something um Generally, you know, people sort of slightly forget and they disappear and etc. But the idea that if the French press, who I imagine are pretty harsh when it mm. comes to eulogising people, especially people who deal in the world of food, were unanimous in it, that's probably quite a good, quite a good sign. But um, mm. but no, it'd be, it'd be interesting to find out where he, where, he, where he ended up. Hopefully yeah, I'm just thinking maybe it's Mon, I'm thinking maybe it's Montmartre, you see, which I think is where Carême is buried. So maybe we'll one day get there, Jay, and we'll do a little little. We'll raise a little nice. glass of of something. What are you, you talking know. about? We're going to get that. We're going to get that straight. The same wine flight they had at his three emperors thing. In fact, we'll have all sixteen courses, and we'll crack open some foie gras next to it as well. We'll have to ask Mark for some help then. <laughs> yeah, he can. He can be on wine and beer. <laughs> we'll get the songbirds and the, uh, the the Nando's. <laughs> get a little picnic rug in the middle of the uh, in the cemetery and just crack open loads of bottles of champagne. That's so, great. <laughs> We'd be looking for location episode. There you go. That's a perfect one. I think that'd be amazing. Oh, James, thank you. I really adore these um these these Hall of Fames. I found them endlessly fascinating and really intriguing. I'd never heard of him before. Uh, but I think when you he, like you said within the within the team of different chefs, he feels a distinctly different tone to the other ones who are in who are in there. They're not just this wall of sort of white jacketed stone looking people. He felt like a very different part of it and. What a cute, what a fabulous little slice of of that sort of culinary history, uh, that timeline as well, were there. So that was uh, that was brilliant. Thank you, I really enjoyed that. Good, yeah. No, me too. I, I mean, as I said, I mean, for me, you know, these aren't stories that I have at my fingertips. There might be names that I've come across that I, I've remembered. And I thought they're interesting. I must spend some time trying to stitch that together. So I find them fascinating to 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 hopefully you know put some flesh on their, their, their bony story um, and obviously I'm always you know if people want to have, have any suggestions or they know anything about any of these characters or they have a connect, just obviously we'd love to hear that's what I you know these stories are by no means the kind of definitive story they're just you know what I've managed to piece together so if people know something different or or they know something more or there's another angle I would love to know because I'm just endlessly fascinated to, to, to know as much as I can about these, these characters 
Yeah, please do get. And we know we have lots of chefs out there listening, but also historians who, who dig it as well, and um, <laughs> plenty of scientists who are never shy to tell us when we get things wrong in that front. So historians, wade in, tell us how wrong we are because we really enjoy. I that. imagine um, the scientists have just given up on us, Jay. They have actually. They've stopped emailing because I think they just after a while I just get saying thanks very much. These really guys I didn't realize quite how wrong we were, but this is fabulous because by the end, yeah we, we we managed to you know be so wrong at times. It's almost uh, I think they quite like it. Mm. <laughs> but no, do drop us the line journey to the center of food at gmail.com or at journey to the center of food on Instagram is where you can find us. And uh, what are we supposed to say? Like and subscribe and all these various things. Do uh, oh absolutely do do subscribe. Well. well, yeah, I mean subscribe. It's always yeah. useful. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and say nice things because apparently that helps. helps Does it? Oh well, what, like what, what Re- review? Review. Leave us a review, positive one. Don't give us less than two. If you're gonna, if you're angry at us in something, just just <laughs> go for a walk. <laughs> Crack over some champagne and foie gras. Um, wonderful. Well, James, thank you ever so much for this week. Uh, another inductee into the Hall of Fame uh, behind the velvet rope. Uh, I will see you again next week. Indeed. <laughs>